to be able to visit customers in places like China, Japan, across America, all over Europe. That was something that I kind of, when I started in my career, would, would not have been imaginable. Many scientists we interview on this show have had multiple chapters in their scientific careers, be it through changing companies or moving between academia and industry. Simon Pierce is an exception to the rule, but his nearly 40 years starting at Bainbridge, now part of Thermo Fisher Scientific, have offered myriad of opportunities for excitement and discovery. So welcome to another season four episode of Bringing Chemistry to Life. I'm your host, Paolo Brayuca from Thermo Fisher Scientific, and I'm especially excited today to share this conversation with my longtime friend and colleague. We began by asking Simon about his upbringing and how he first began working at Maybridge. Well, I'd like to say that, you know, I was given a chemistry kit on my parents when I was sort of eight years old, and that started, you know, the, the, the sort of lifelong desire to be a chemist. But um, if, I, if I said that, I'd be lying, if I'm honest. Uh, I did have a chemistry kit when I was, when I was younger. I can remember that. But no, it's, it's really by chance, if I'm honest. Um, so um, I took a general sort of suite of, uh, of exams when I was 16. Um, and actually, my favorite topics were English and history. So not uh, science at all. But uh, I thought if I took science at kind of advanced level, then I had a better chance of getting a job. Um, and so I, I took um, advanced levels in, in chemistry and biology. And actually, I didn't do very well. I actually got a, an F in chemistry, A-level. So, uh, so I actually failed my, my chemistry. Um, so that was a really bad start, uh, you know, and, and, but, you know, we'll keep that between ourselves, Paolo. Um, you know, don't uh, mention... Yeah, there's only a few thousand listeners. There's only a few thousand listeners. Exactly, yeah, you know, um, yeah. we don't want human resources to know about that. Uh, they might, you know, dock my salary or something. Um, <laughs> but I had, a, I had a, an F. Um, so, but, I, but the school were aware of the, of the challenges I had and, and um, they, uh, they found a job. I was looking for, for someone, I, you know, I wasn't going to go to university. Um, and uh, I really needed to find some uh, some work. So I actually finished my exams, I think, on the first day uh, at school and started full time on the on the Monday in, in a full time job as a laboratory assistant. Uh, and as that lab- laboratory assistant, I still wasn't doing any real chemistry. I was doing some uh, uh, some some weights and measures. Uh, we were working for I was working for a company that made car care products back in the, the early 1980s was really a. Um, desire for people to customize their vehicles their cars and uh, but after about 18 months um, there were some changes within that company I, I got made redundant so I was looking for a, a job and uh, I was looking in the local newspapers and I saw this job for uh, assistant chemist at a company called Maybridge and uh, I thought well I have some laboratory experience I've, I've got about 18 months working in a lab I hadn't really done any chemistry in that time but I, I at least can apply uh, no harm there. So I, I applied for the job as an assistant chemist and I uh, was interviewed. Um, uh, I remember my, my uh, what was to become my manager, Dr. Ken Morris, who was a very good uh, organic chemist. By the way, he interviewed me. And at the end of the interview, he said, well, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll give you a chance. And so he, you know, it was, uh, um, and that was an opportunity for it. So I, I started work at Maybridge and that was in January the 31st, 1984. So Kind of unbelievably to me, 39 years ago, uh, in a couple of weeks' time. And you've seen the chemical industry evolving, right, in, in, in these 40 years. So it's, it must have been an, an incredibly fascinating journey if you stop and, 
and look back. I, 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 I don't know how often you do that. Do, do, you, do you ever stop and, and think and, you know, and, and, and re oh, rebuild it in your mind? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, um, funnily, funnily enough, we, we, we were during the, the, the period of time I was with Maybridge, obviously the, the business grew a lot and that, um, uh, at one point, um, we we were we were a family business. Then became owned by venture capitalists, and at that point, um, we actually had a visit from uh, Her Royal Highness Princess Anne, uh, and she came to the lab and she spoke to me and she asked me what changes I'd seen in chemistry. And this was was uh, in the mid mid noughties, I guess, and uh, uh, obviously since the nineteen eighties. And I said, well, the, the main thing was, of course, the, uh, the the introduction of computers. You know, when I started in the the lab, we still uh, wrote everything down. We had file indexes. We really didn't use computers to 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 figure out methods. Um, all of the we had journals. Actually, physical journals would be delivered every every month, and and um, all of that. All of what you did was was really, you know, I, I guess people describe. Um, the you know the art of organic synthesis and it was an art in those days certainly because you you really had to kind of figure out the best method to get to a target molecule kind of from from your own you know efforts these days there's a lot of help i guess uh, you know a lot of computer tools out there a lot of uh, of databases of methodologies you can access and 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 uh, and and, uh, and find um, the the routes that you need maybridge was probably a, a, a quite a unique thing right it's it was really at the forefront of innovation back then, right? And and I guess perfect place for an organic chemist to be and kind of learning on on the job, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Um, so Maybridge was founded by uh, Dr. Rogan Bridgewater, who was a professor at Guy's Hospital, and then he uh, he wanted to bring his family up in Cornwall, which is where I where I'm from, where I live. And this is kind of uh, people are not that familiar is is the kind of extreme southwest of England. It's not a a big area where there's a lot of high-tech jobs and so he needed to create uh, sort of his own business and so he founded Maybridge and um, he had some contacts in both the the sort of uh, pharmaceutical industry and, and the agrochemical research industry and he really uh, understood there was a requirement for um, molecules, heterocyclic, predominantly heterocyclic molecules for screening um, uh, for uh, against um, you know to discover new drugs or to discover new pesticides or herbicides in the agrochemical world um, so um, you know he he set the business up and it grew slowly but when I joined in in 84 I guess maybe there was about 20 chemists working there and we were pretty much given free reign to to create what we we liked we just had a very simple rule sounds odd uh, today um, but we were we were very clear we had to make three times our salary plus ten percent so we had to sell enough chemicals to 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 um to make uh, our salary plus uh, you know two two more uh, this this covered the overheads and and this was kind of the rule and then pretty much as long as you did that um then you were you were good and uh, you could just carry on and make so it, of course it favored people who kind of understood what the customers wanted you couldn't just make any old chemical you had to make something that customers desired they wanted to buy um and uh, and you could kind of work that out almost by trial and error but offering uh, the compounds to customers we used to offer a common we would make a series of compounds maybe 20 or 30 in a, a analogs of a around a particular um molecule that we'd synthesize new molecule and then we would offer those uh, to to a customer and they would say whether they wanted to purchase them or not and so we kind of knew what sort of molecules the customers were interested in, 
um, and we, we sort of target our chemistry around there. And, and it is so different than working in an academic environment where, where you just pursue the discovery and even a failed experiment is a learning. Well, it certainly is in industry as well, but as you, you know, you always had this sort of profit target to hit, right? And, and, and then, you know, you just can't, can't, can't sleep. You, you know, it's, it's, death, it's life or death at some point, which, which is really interesting. Um, do you think you've been lucky at the very beginning? Because it must have been a bit tricky for Maybridge to find, to find qualified personnel in Cornwall, right? It's not like being in, I don't know, in, in the Cambridge area or, or I, I, I don't know, in, in Oxford or whatever, London, you know, where, where there's, there's plenty of people. It must have been tricky from the sort of HR perspective, from the, from the recruiting perspective. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I'm sure that was one of the reasons why they, you know, they took the chance for me in the, in the first place. I mean, we always struggled, you know, um, the nearest cinema was probably 30 miles away. There was no nightclubs. There were very little to do. And we did have, you know, um, a group of, uh, of younger chemists. And, and particularly if you, in, if you were into the surfing or the sort of the, that style in the summer, then uh, Cornwall is a great place uh, to, to work and to live. In the winter, not so much. Uh, and um, so we were actually a close-knit community. Um, but yes, it was a struggle to recruit people down. We, we, we did. Um, and I guess the ones that also... Where we were successful because of the, again, you know, to comment on the freedom we had to kind of create our own chemistry, to do our own thing. We weren't following anyone's direction, particularly, you know, we could we could make the molecules that interested us. So there were a group of chemists who really enjoyed that freedom. And, you know, it was worth to come to a kind of fairly remote place to be able to do that, whereas maybe in a larger, more formal organisation, they would have a lot more constraints, you know, in terms of what they could actually do. And, and back then, you know, uh, between the 80s and, and, and the 90s, I mean, that, that was the time when the pharma companies started looking into, you know, chemical diversities. There were a lot of people getting into the sort of combinatorial chemistry. So this is where chemistry went more brutally right with more brute force into exploring the chemical space and that's when you know these screening libraries became extremely popular um so i guess maybridge was uh was was quite quite at the forefront back back then and were there many other companies doing doing similar job and what do you remember of you know where the the, the spirit of the scientific community was back then so i think we're actually quite unique to begin with, um, mainly because there were, I mean, we, we didn't set out to create a collection of screening compounds. We were making small groups of molecules, which we were selling directly to different customers. But um, in that, if you, if you um, it kind of is, is uh, it's funny now, but our, uh, the quantity of compound we used to sell to a customer for screening back in the 1980s was two and a half grams. Um, now, today, uh, to put that into context, you know, if we sell one milligram or five milligrams, that's plenty for a customer to be able to do multiple screens. But back then, the technology wasn't so sophisticated as it is, and they were buying multiple grams. But we, if we have to provide two and a half grams to a customer, then as a chemist, you're obviously going to synthesize ideally more than two and a half grams. You don't know what the yield's going to be, so you, you kind of overestimate. You make sure I have plenty, so maybe we get 10 grams of material. Then we sell our two and a half grams to the customer. What do you do with the seven and a half? Well, you put it in a bottle and you put it on the shelf, and, uh, and that's what we did for tens of thousands of compounds uh, over the years. So we ended up in sort of the 
the mid-1990s, I guess, with a collection of about 50,000, 55,000 compounds, multiple grams, all of which were solids, all of which were fairly uh, inert, you know, they weren't chemically reactive. And, uh, and as you say, the big pharmaceutical companies were at that point looking to acquire um, additional screening compounds because the automation was starting to kick in in terms of the, the large volumes of compounds they could screen very quickly. But they, of course, synthesizing enough compounds is a challenge. Uh, so acquiring commercial compounds was an opportunity. So we had a lot of business and that and the business grew very quickly through the 1990s um, you know on the back of that and there weren't really that many um, other companies that had you know that kind of collection of compounds so because uh, if you were to, to look at sort of the the 1980s or the landscape of the 1980s then pharmaceutical companies I would say in in, in sort of Europe and North America Japan they were they were doing pharmaceutical research as sort of big business and they, they had their in-house collections, which they were adding to from commercial vendors like ourselves. And then if you looked at sort of like uh, Eastern Europe, you still had the Soviet Union at that point. Uh, and their, their model was very different and it was very state sponsored. Uh, and um, but obviously, you know, after after the sort of the, the fall of the, the Soviet Union in kind of the early sort of, uh, I, I guess, 1990s, there was a real uh, you know, change in terms of kind of larger uh, organizations came out of that, um, that that had much larger collections. And we take, let's say, the world leader, perhaps in in in, in building blocks and screening compounds today, Enamain, who are a Ukrainian company, came out of, of of kind of that period, but not the only ones. Um, you know, so so that's kind of how how the business kind of changed. But yes, back in the 1990s, we were in a very uh, strong position. We had uh, we had some interesting molecules and obviously that led to us winning uh, the 19 in 1996 the queen's award for export so it was a that was a you know a big opportunity for the business but also it then uh, led to some significant changes uh not least the the family stepping back venture capitalist uh, business uh, you know purchasing what was the major business which ultimately led of course to the uh, to the point where today we're part of firm Fisher scientific do you ever miss your days in the lab Oh yes, I think um, you know uh, all all of us, you know who who've done chemistry. We, we we certainly I enjoyed the creativity of it. I enjoyed the the, the kind of the designing of the molecules and and, and the success. The, the the great feeling when you actually synthesized something that you actually set out to to make. You know, sometimes they were quite challenging. So so yes, I I do miss that. But you know, it was kind of an evolution for me. I spent about sixteen years in the in the lab. Okay, um, you know, I, I ended up as uh, from from kind of starting uh, you know as an assistant chemist with uh, with kind of uh, you know basically washing out the glassware in the in the lab and doing fairly general jobs to chemistry manager i had um, several you know teams uh, reporting to me i was i was kind of um, i had my last sort of significant chemistry job i actually had 32 chemists working on a single project um, for for a large pharma company um, I do remember kind of the, the, the a couple of the last projects I had actually, um, I think, uh, you know, show the breadth of the, the sort of the, the chemistry that we did, because I had two projects. One was uh, actually a diabetes diagnostic kit. So this was a chemical compound that went into a, uh, a kit that, um, that uh, was able to um, to measure blood sugar levels. And to, it was kind of an electronic device that, uh, um, that was able to, to tell you whether your blood sugar was too low or not. 
So that was a, a medical device. But then at the same time, I was also working on another project for a toy company in Canada. So this company were making uh, a, a, their project was a toy bubble, like a, a soap bubble that you blow. And um, so, but this bubble, um, I think they called them Zubbles when they marketed them. Um, it had a primary color, like a red or a green color, and you blew that and, and you could see this colored bubble and then the color disappears, right? So you don't get a nasty red stain on your, your mother's kitchen uh, surface uh, or, or whatever. Um, but it was, it was down to an indicator dye that was in the bubble solution. And the large surface area of the bubble meant that um, as, it, as it drifted through the air, uh, it reacted with the, uh, with the, with the, um, the, the, the oxygen and, and that reduced the, the pH and the color disappeared. And so that was another project that we were involved in. So very different, you know, both, both chemical, both heterocyclic compounds, one, one in a, a really kind of a, a key diagnostic, diagnostic kit for medical device and, and another a, a, a kid's toy. So kind of shows the breadth of, of how chemicals can be used. We hope you're enjoying this episode of Bringing Chemistry to Life. I just wanted to steal a few seconds from the interview to tell you about Chemdex, the new tool for organic chemists on thermofisher.com. If you do synthetic chemistry for a living, give it a shot. It's full of useful information and a much faster way to find the products you need to run your reactions. You find it at thermofisher.com slash chemdex. That is C-H-E-M-D-E-X. Check it out, it's free. And now, back to our conversation. People say that chemist, chemistry is somehow a sort of slowly evolving science, or even a science which is dead in the sense there's not much going on, right? And perhaps that's, that, that's an impression you can get if you compare it to, you know, some of the biological sciences that are, you know, so progressing so fast, you know, think about genetic sciences and, you know, some of the molecular biology, you know, how, how they've changed the world, and, you know, how much is going on at the moment. But the reality is that there's a lot going on in, even in organic chemistry, right? And if you think about how you did compounds, you know, just a few years ago or how organic chemistry looks today and, and you know, how we looked back in the 80s, I guess, I guess it's pretty different. What's your perspective? It's quite a unique opportunity to speak with someone who's seen it all. <laughs> well, I think, you know, absolutely. For, for a start, I think you, you've got to kind of um, separate the, the, the organic synthesis from sort of the, if you like, the organic chemicals and, and, and the chemistry, because synthesis itself hasn't changed dramatically, I guess, in, 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 in the years since I've been doing it. Yes, we've had some, some new techniques. When I, was, um, when I was first in organic chemistry, we did a lot of um, you know, carbonyl chlorides um, were... Uh, a popular functional group we used to make, even though they were very reactive, um, uh, so they didn't last very long. You know, they weren't very stable. Um, they were they were difficult to handle. They had lots of issues. And then you know, people discovered you know coupling reagents, and we could use carboxylic acids, and now we a much more stable functional group, and we can we can use coupling reagents with those. So things kind of changed, and obviously, then in the eighties we had sort of palladium cross coupling chemistry. Um, you know uh, Suzuki and, and and the sort of carbon carbon bond formation that that was the big you know that was an, and obviously you know suddenly boronic acids were and esters were really um, big in terms of functional groups. I used to do a lot of 
chemistry back in the early 80s, there's still a chemistry with tributyl stanol compounds that were kind of, I guess, early earlier carbon-carbon bond, um, you know, functional groups people used to use, but much less kind of clean, a lot more, you know, uh, obviously you have tin compounds and not nice. They weren't actually very nice to, to is, synthesize. Is anybody, is anybody doing that these days? Probably. Well, well I think there are a couple of, of you know, yeah. situations where you do need to use them because, um, because, uh, you just can't get the, the bronic compounds; they're not stable. Um, but uh, so, so you know, occasionally they can be used. But for the for the most part, they've been obviously been replaced. So yes, there's been there's been you know there's been shifts in terms of organic synthesis in terms of the sort of reactions out there. But I think much more importantly is how the compounds are used. You know, um, it, it's there's so many sort of as you know you said earlier when we were talking about the the, the sort of the the, the diabetes diagnostic and the, and the toy, the breadth of organic chemistry. I mean, you know, we recently introduced a, a range of organic molecules that are used in in solar cells. You know, organophotovoltaics. And I know you you, you interviewed a, a lady from the Cast University in one of these podcasts who was working in this kind of area. Um, you know, and, and and that certainly wasn't an area of ex, uh, of, of um, research at all in the nineteen eighties. You know, uh, so so. The uses for organic molecules and, and how they can be used in, in you know continues to be to, to grow. You know whether that be um, you know in the, uh, the tradition more traditional um, uh, you know disciplines like the pharmaceutical drug discovery or whether it be you know agrochemical research and, and, and uh, creating better um, you know uh, and, and, and cleaner more targeted. Uh, sort of herbicides and uh, and or, or you know sort of um, right the way through to sort of new technologies. So the material science, uh, you know, where we're we're kind of making kind of new materials. How we're using uh, you know organic molecules in things like screens and uh, uh, you know and sort of foldable foldable phones. You know, uh, um, cell phones or, or mobile phones weren't uh, you know weren't a thing, but now of course a lot of organic compounds are. Are used in these kind of devices too. So I think um, you know the, there's there's so much variety and so much you know, kind of new um, new things to discover in organic chemistry that um, it continues to excite me all, all, all the time. And, and it does say to me, uh, and yeah, you said you, you said it so well, Simon. You're you're a man of many stories, right? And I, yeah, it's, always you know i could speak to you forever and i just just tell me one you know you know in in your 39 years of career you you have some funny ones but you know why don't you pick one that uh you know it's it's worth remembering okay well i, I will I, well i mentioned the files early on and i and you you commented about there is a story there um so um as i mentioned you know file, files are extremely uh, smelly chemicals and if you're working with them then you've got to be extremely careful that you kind of don't get exposed otherwise you'll end up you know uh, without any friends and um and on this occasion i was I, I worked with a lot of different files early on in my career and the other thing to remember about files is that because they smell really strongly they actually kind of knock out the olfactory nerve in in the nose so after after a few seconds, you can smell the smell, but then the smell disappears. So as far as you're concerned, there isn't a, any odour. But of course, there is. You know, it's just that you are no longer capable of, of smelling it. So 
and I must have accidentally, I think, spilled a couple of drops of, of, of a solution that contained a file onto my work boots whilst I was in the lab one afternoon. And so, um, but, uh, you know, I hadn't realized this. I finished up what I was doing. I jumped into my car. I was on my own. So there was no one to, to tell me that this, this had happened. Um, and uh, I drove the 30 or so miles back to my home. Now, at the time, my, my wife, um, I had um, two young children and um, my wife worked in the evenings. We were, we would, uh, as, as many young families do, um, I worked during the day. I used to, to get home from work and, and she would have fed the children and then she would head out to work for the evening and, and I would look after the children, put them to bed. Uh, so that was, that was my job for the, for the evening. So I got back and now obviously um, I would always take my work boots off. I wouldn't come into the house with the, with the boots on. So I removed those and often the first thing I did when I got back, having worked in a lab, would I was take a shower. So I took a shower and after I was... After I'd taken a shower, then I, I say I say goodbye to my wife, and uh, and I um, got the the children some ready for bed. At, at which point there was kind of a loud knocking on the on the front door, and um, there was someone from from the gas company, and so I mentioned that um, these files are used um, in in natural gas to to give them the smell so that people can detect a leak, and my boots that had been sat outside the front door, uh, they had actually. Um, they had the smell from those boots, believe it or not, had actually wafted around up the, the estate where we lived, was, was maybe uh, you know, a couple of hundred houses. Somebody, some neighbour had complained of the smell of gas. There was clearly a gas leak in the area. They'd sent an emergency response team out uh, to scour the neighbourhood to see if they could detect this leak. And the guy knocking on my door was indeed someone from the gas company to find out whether I uh, had smelt gas and indeed knew if there was any 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 kind of gas leak and so when i told him that in all honesty it was almost certainly my boots that i was a <laughs> chemist and i was working in a chemistry lab and i worked with uh, these compounds um and he was able to kind of prove from from taking a quick uh to smell that this indeed was where the smell was coming from so um i was uh, i was told to um to make sure that the, the they were sealed away and they couldn't so uh so that was one story, and that was where I where I caused a major <laughs> gas alert. Um, but as you say, Carlo, there were, there, were, there were several of those as you as you get over the over the, over many years of doing doing chemistry. Yeah, I started laughing earlier because I knew the story, and, and it, it, this is it's unbelievable, right? And it's incredible how you know it's probably been just a drop, right? <laughs> and how bad that stuff can smell. You know, you can, you you can get the the smell in your whole you know estate and. Uh, you know, cause cause an actual emergency in the town. It's just, it's it's kind of unbelievable. Uh, this is a funny story. Uh, it's a funny story, Simon. Thanks. And after after all these stories, you know, uh, all these experiences, you know, in, in your thirty nine years, uh, what what takes you still out of bed in the morning? You know, what what excites you about about your job at the moment? Oh, I think it's you know the, the, there are so many things. Um, as I said, you know, there's there's a combination of the of of the research. You know, I, I one of the things that I was really, I mean, I, I guess you know, looking back, one of the one of the reasons that I I really uh, felt, you know, um, I guess that I wanted to put the work in. You know, as, as you mentioned, it was really tough actually when I started at, at Maybridge and, and doing the chemistry, but. You know, I mentioned that you know a couple of years earlier, my my father had become very ill, and um, 
And so I've kind of had, you know, experiences of kind of, you know, of the impact of, of, of diseases and, and the impact they have on, on, on um, families. Um, and so kind of working in a, in, a, in a kind of research environment where I was making compounds that in some way, you know, contributed to kind of, you know, solving some of those problems was, was really, you know, for me, um, really exciting and, 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 and still, still is, you know, and, and, and one of the biggest, although I wasn't directly involved, um, you know, it, it, back in the, the, the sort of the, um, the, the late 90s, early 2000s, you know, some of the, the chemists that I worked with, you know, they were, um, you know, worked, worked uh, with a company called Cudis Pharmaceuticals, um, you know, in 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 uh, helping to discover the drug um, Elaborif, which uh, is, is is sold as Limpazo. It's, a, it's an anti-cancer drug for um, the a primary um, treatment for ovarian cancer. Um, you know, there's a, there's been a lot written about how successful it's been and, and how important the drug that is. And you know, we we played a small part in in that. So that that's something that I know everybody who was involved is extremely you know proud of. Um, and that that sort of came from the team that were were there in in Tintagel at the at, uh, at the time, um, you know, involved in that. But you know, subsequently, um, there've been many other you know other projects, um, and you know, also the, the ability you know that uh, we've had you know a couple of years now with the pandemic where the travel's been a lot less. Last year, I was I started to visit customers, and, and you know, I went to uh, to to Stockholm. Uh, and and to Germany, um, so a couple of sort of small, but um, you know, previously to that, you know, to be able to visit um, you know customers in places like China, uh, Japan, yeah, across America, all over Europe, you know, um, that was something that I kind of when I started in my career would would not have been imaginable, you know, um, you know, I, I grew up in a small fishing town, my 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 father was a fisherman, um, you know, I think the furthest he ever went in his his whole life was London twice. Um, uh, you know, I, I didn't travel abroad at all uh, until um, I was probably in my 20s when I went to France. That was exciting to me that the, the opportunities that, you know, the, the careers afforded me to meet all these people, to see these different cultures, to to experience all of yeah. that. That gets me out of bed in the morning. You know, that's exciting. Yeah. You know, what, yeah. what's today going to bring? After all these experience and, you know, what, what you've been through and what you've seen and what you know about the market and, and, and you know, and how you've seen your own career, but you know also uh, the one of many many, many other people, and former colleagues, and and such. Uh, what would be a piece of advice you would give to someone to start in their careers? I think just take the opportunities that that um, you know that that come your way. I mean, it, there's always a certain amount of luck. We talked about it, you know, um, with yeah. with everything. But at the same time, you you do make your own luck to a certain degree. As as I mentioned that 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 trip to to Switzerland to give the talk the first talk, I wasn't the most senior chemist in the team by any any means at that point. Um, there were others that 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 had the kind of the the first opportunity to go, but said, "No, you know, this is outside of my comfort zone. I'm not. Uh, uh, I don't feel it's something for me." Um, and I it was outside of my comfort zone, in all honesty. Yeah. And I thought. But you know, I, I I took the opportunity and and it and it, it paid off and you know, I actually started to get asked to do more things and, and and that grew. So I think maybe take advantage you know take advantage of the opportunities as they arise. But at the same time, and this is something perhaps you know that um, you know again from from my own perspective, um, 
try and find something that you enjoy doing. Don't necessarily think that, um, you know, that, that you have to, to, to kind of reach a very senior position or to have a job that just because uh, of, a, of a title or, or, or whatever, it's something for me, at least, it's important to, to kind of like enjoy the job that I'm doing. You know, I've, I've, I've been very lucky um, over close to 40 years to, to find myself, uh, you know, doing a variety of different jobs, working uh, in the lab, working um, sort of managing teams of, of chemists, then working in a more commercial role, um, traveling, all of that I've really enjoyed. So I think for me, you know, the advice would be to, yeah, take advantages of the opportunities as, as, as they come your way. Don't be, you know, put off. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's, it might seem scary. Some of these might seem scary, but they're actually when you, when, you know, when you do them, it might turn out to be something that really, you know, you enjoy. And I think I want to do that. That was Simon Pierce, Senior Product Manager at Thermo Fisher Scientific. Thanks for joining us for this season four episode of Bringing Chemistry to Life and keep an ear out for more. If you enjoyed this conversation, you ensure to enjoy Simon's book, video, podcast, and other content recommendations. Look in the episode notes in your app for a URL where you can access these recommendations and register for a free Bringing Chemistry to Life t-shirt. This episode was produced by Sarah Briganti, Matt Ferris, and Matthew Stockton.